So the three diseases that children will often get early in life. And we know that these are increasing and we're seeing more prevalence of them as the years go by. And we know at this point from analyzing the microbiome that the microbiome most likely plays a role. And we're still trying to tease apart the ways how. This is episode 131 of the NeuroExperience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. I made the NeuroExperience to expand the field of neuroscience education and to give free access to brain health education globally. Our brains are everything. The decisions we make about everything in life comes from our brain. So why wouldn't we worry about it or care for it? In order to do this, we need access to proper education from data-driven research to help us along the way. In saying this, I hope you'll help me push this out there to the world by leaving a short review. I know many of you are regular listeners, and I know if you are, it would help us immensely if you could spend two minutes leaving a small review on Apple iTunes. Now that the housekeeping's out of the way, let's move on to today's episode, which I hope you'll enjoy. There is a community of 38 trillion microorganisms, mostly bacteria, living in and on us, seeded by our mothers. This is our microbiome, our non-human half we can't live without. In an astonishing journey of symbiosis, microbes co-evolved with us, carrying in their genes and therefore in us, the entire history of the world. The gut, microbiome, microbiota, probiotics, prebiotics, What on earth are these words and how do they affect the brain? We've all heard of the gut-brain axis. I know I see the word being thrown around and it's almost impossible to not want to know more about it. This subject's always been a mystery to me because, like you will learn in this episode, the microbiome is an entire universe. It takes so much knowledge and time to really understand it and its relation to our lives and our health. So in order to understand this fully and in more depth, I recruited the amazing Dr. Azza Gadir to the NeuroExperience to explore the depths of microbiome with us. Azza is an immunologist who completed her postdoctoral training in the laboratory at Harvard Med School, where her published research was focused on the immunological mechanisms that underlie the role of the gut microbiome in conferring protection to diseases early in life. For this work, she holds issued and pending patents and has collaborated with industry partners to accelerate the discovery of microbiome-related immunotherapies for food allergy. She's also the head of research and development at Seed. If you haven't checked them out, please go and do so on Instagram and you'll be just as inspired as me when you see their work of art literally coming to life on your phone. Seed is an ecosystem of scientists, doctors, innovators, entrepreneurs, and translational storytellers from around the world. They collectively believe in the potential of the microbiome to improve human and planetary health. Together, they're raising the bar in bacteria. Without further delay, let's get into the episode. Neuroscience, neurology, longevity, and beyond. Learn everything you need to know from the best physicians and experts in the world. The NeuroExperience podcast is a platform to help you understand what the brain is and how it shapes every part of our lives. Every episode comes to you from highly credible sources. I'm Louisa Nicola, medical neuroscientist from Australia, living in New York City. Come and take a neuroexperience with me. 
you've done so much in this world and you're very young. You're, you're not, where are you from? You're not from. Um, I'm from London, from you're the from, UK. You're yeah. London, the UK. And that's where, why don't you tell us, how did you even get into science? And I, by the way, I, I would love if so many young girls were listening to this and become so inspired by you and your story to go out and pursue a, um, a career in science. But why don't you tell us how that started? Um, so I am actually, I'm trained as an immunologist and, and that actually means that, um, I've studied how the immune system works. Um, and to start off by defining it, the immune system is what protects us from infection, right? Mm-hmm. So through kind of various lines of defense, um, if our immune system isn't functioning as it's supposed to be, you can get diseases like autoimmunity or allergies or cancer. And so I kind when I was doing my undergraduate degree in, in biochemistry and immunology, I just remember sitting in immunology lectures and being fascinated by this entire system that was a domino effect where one cell affects the other and then you can result in either disease or protecting someone from disease. So um, I felt very encouraged to um, apply for my PhD because I I wanted to really focus and and understand the system better. So I ended up doing my PhD in London um, in the immune system of lupus disease in particular which is a chronic inflammatory disease. So you studied that in London and then now you're here in the United States, you're in California. Yep. How? So then you went to SEED because right now you're the head of R&D research and development at SEED. Yes. Okay. So before we get into SEED, I really want to know what that is. I want to know what the focus is there, but um, how did that overlap? Did you think, well, I'm really into the microbiome? Like how did that start? Yeah. So um, after my PhD, I ended up moving to Boston actually for a few years and I worked at Harvard Medical School and and Boston Children's Hospital in a lab. Um, And I ended up pivoting my research a little bit um, from the I was still working on the role of immune cells, but instead of in lupus, I, I started working on food allergies in particular. So trying to understand what what they are and um, how they impact um, how our immune system can um, go wrong and result in food allergies. Look, there is no better time in the world to be talking about the immune system with the pandemic. And I'm sure that um, a lot of content from the seed team has gone viral during this time because everybody's wondering how do we boost our immune system, but more so, you know, what is the immune system and what is the gut microbiome? And we're going to get into all of that. Now, just on my end, I want to tell you why I'm so fascinated by this area. And coming from the world of neurology, I don't know too much. And I I put my hand up and say, I don't know too much about microbiome. But what I do know is that there's so many, um, there's so much research coming out now around the relationship between neurodegenerative diseases, which is my area of expertise, mainly Alzheimer's disease. And there's this Harvard medical doctor, Uh, Robert Moyer, and he's a Harvard uh, neurologist, and he's studying the link between Alzheimer's disease and the microbiome. And basically, you know, his thesis is, so when we look at Alzheimer's disease, we know that it's a neurodegenerative disease. We know that so far what happens is over time, we get a buildup 
of this protein called amyloid. And amyloid builds up into plaques. And what happens is we call them plaques and tangles. They build up in the brain and it basically causes neuronal death. And it's a very aggressive disease. It's incurable. But of course, we know that there's certain lifestyle interventions that can help slow the progression of that. Now, What Robert Moyer is doing is his thesis is it came out around 2012 and he's trying to say that amyloid plaques are part of the immune system, which might show us that when the the barriers of the immune system break down, this could be the cause of disease and could be the start of the cascade of events that occurred during a neurodegenerative disease. So that's when I started thinking, wow, like we don't really look at the relationship between immunity and the brain or the gut microbiome and the brain. So on your end, like what, what what's the what's the relationship? Like when we talk about gut brain, what what are we talking about? Yep. So I'll start by defining the microbiome. Um, and so um, we humans are mostly microbes, right? We have over a hundred trillion of them all over our bodies, and the term microbiome is defined as all of the bacteria, viruses, fungi and other eukaryotes that inhabit the human body. So these live inside and on us, on on all of our surfaces. Um, And so all of these collectively are being referred to as the second human genome or the gut microbiome. And and at this point in time, people consider it as a separate organ. It has very distinct metabolic and immune activity and is able to interact with our other systems. And so... um, Couple of take home points here that microbes outnumber our human cells 10 to 1. Um, the majority of them live in our gut, or even though we have them all over in, in, in all over in other kinds of organs and systems. Um, and um, I'll go into talking about the brain in particular because it is super, super fascinating. Mm. Um, but the important thing before we go on to talk about the brain, um, it's it's really vital to remember that the, the bacteria in the microbiome aren't just passive kind of members of our body, right? They actively interact with our immune system and with our other systems. And they do that by anything from helping to digest the food that comes into our body to regulating our immune system to protecting against other bacteria that are able to cause disease. And there are also cases of of bacteria strains that live in our gut that are able to produce vitamins for us. For example, vitamin B12, thiamine, riboflavin, et cetera. Mm. These are all vitamins that that we know that microbes in the gut can produce. And so um, it's this fascinating field that wasn't even generally recognized to exist until probably the late 1990s. Um, But at this point, we can firmly and securely say that while it is an early field, um, that the microbiome and these microbes are essential for human development, for immunity, and also for nutrition. Mm, That's First of all, before you move on, can I ask, first of all, what is, we, we see that there is, when we talk about brain health, we know that to have good brain health, and especially when it comes to Alzheimer's disease patients, we're seeing a cohort of patients being um, diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease with a, um, they have got a deficiency in B12, So is that like a disruption? If we have a deficiency in B12, is that like a disruption in our microbiome? Potentially, yes. As in, um, you've hit on a very important point, which is what are the different ways that you can impact the function of your microbiome, right? Like what are the, what are all of the ways that we know that, um, that 
So for example, like the example that you gave was that vitamin B12 would be reduced. That's something that if it's correlated with shifts in the bacteria communities, that's what the term dysbiosis means. Mm. And, and, and the term dysbiosis refers to any disruption in your microbiome, both in function or in like the existence of the microbes that can be detected. And the reason why we know dysbiosis is important is because there's a plethora of diseases, including in the kind of neurospace that are associated with very specific kinds of dysbiosis signatures. Um, so for example, we know that for, for autoimmune diseases like um, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, dystrophy, MS, these have all been, we've, we've seen published studies that have shown that these, um, that dysbiosis can be associated with any of these conditions. It's so interesting because when we, when we think of the, the microbiome, anything can affect it. So you can get dysbiosis from stress, from cortisol, from the environment, from sleep. Isn't that, is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, mm. um, it's, we know that probably by the time that a child is an infant, around three or four, the presence of the microbes on your body are pretty stable, almost as stable as an adult's microbiome. Um, that doesn't mean that the function doesn't change, but we know that the bacteria themselves that have colonized are pretty stable. Um, however, there are a few things that can affect your microbiome. And um, you've touched on a couple of things, such as stress. Stress is a big example, but also kind of um, we know that diet can impact age, mode of birth, so the way that you've been delivered and um, use of antibiotics. These are all things that are able to perturb your microbiome and, and result in dysbiosis. Well, isn't it when you, t you, know, you get sick? It's so funny because we we get sick, we have a lowered immune system, and then we go and take antibiotics and that completely wipes out all of the good bacteria in our gut. And then doesn't that leave us more um, susceptible to getting another sickness? Exactly. So <laughs> the, thing, the, thing, the thing about antibiotics is that they are important, right? There are so many infections that we wouldn't be able to clear without support from antibiotics. But you hit on a very important point, which is that antibiotics go in and they indiscriminately wipe out bacteria, right? Like mm. they will, they can take out the good bugs as well as the bad bugs. And the best way to think about this is if you think of your microbiome as a forest, and you have trees and you have this ecosystem, if you go in and you clear a little bit of that forest, you're going to have an open space that is then going to be very easily filled in by, by other bad actors, which can drive further disease, right? And so it's really important to think of your body in that way, that like, if you are sick, it is important for you to take antibiotics. But at the same time, a course of antibiotics can be a major perturbation and it can lead to like a reduction in the diversity of bacteria in your, in your gut. Um, we, that's one thing that we firmly know about the microbiome is that diversity is very important. The more diverse the type of microbes that you can detect in the system, the more likely you are to be healthy. Um, and with diseases where you see a reduction in uh, diversity, you tend to... Um, it, they tend to be harder to, to, to clear or to um, treat. And so that's why diversity is at the forefront when you're thinking about the microbiome, how to increase that diversity. And unfortunately, the problem with antibiotics is that they have been shown to, to reduce that diversity. Um, yeah. I was, no, I'm just so fixated. I'm a, I'm a very, like when you, when you told me about the the, the, I'm a very like when you say analogies. So now I'm thinking about the forest. Okay. I'm mm -hmm. thinking, so just to get a clearer picture. So 
microbiome is like the forest. Now the trees are, you know, you get so many different species of trees. So they're all the microbes. Now the trees are good, but you also mentioned there's bad bacteria. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so, so you can have, for example, you can have bad actors. So, so yeah. a, a bad bacteria would be an infection that comes in and takes uh, hold in your system. Yeah. Okay. And then they come and they kill the trees and they kill the good trees, which is the good bacteria. So now you said that we need diversity and, you know, I've read a lot about, you know, um, eat the rainbow. So you get so many different diverse bacteria, but then on the other hand, I'm so puzzled when I think about and learn that there are people out there who are adopting a carnivore diet, for example, they don't eat any plants, but then, so how are they maintaining good gut microbiome? Yeah. So, um, there has been, uh, this field is still young, but there has been data showing that, for example, plant-based or vegetarian diets are associated with healthy, diverse gut microbiota, uh, diverse microbiota. Um, and, um, the diversity can be affected by uh, a varied diet that's rich in plants, vegetables, and fruit. Um, and if you have, the problem is that if you have a limited diet, um, and I don't know, I, I couldn't speak specifically to the carnivore situation, but if you have a limited diet, you tend to have low diversity of microbiota. And so um, that's something that I like, I would find it surprising that people who are, who are restricting themselves to kind of just a carnivore diet would be able to achieve that diversity that you can get with, with vegetarian diets. Mm, okay. Well, I'm going to pass that data along to some <laughs> of the podcast guests that we have. Um, all right. So now that we know that, let's talk about the relationship because I don't think we got into that. I think I butted in because I've got so many questions. Let's talk about what the gut-brain access is. We hear about it. We don't know too much about it. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So um, let's go back because the field, again, is still quite young. Mm. And so we, we know that it, it's at this point that it's clear that the gut microbiota can help regulate mood, cognition, pain, and things like obesity, right? And so we know that understanding the microbiota gut-brain communication kind of trifecta um, is important for us to kind of fully grasp any of these fields. Um, and so... Um, what I really want to start by saying is that there have been lots of studies that have shown that the microbiome can play a specific role in mental health and neurological conditions, things like autism or epilepsy or digest or, or depression by interacting with our nervous system and by even releasing molecules or chemicals that can make their way up into the brain and maybe augment or change behavior. We still need kind of more research or clinical trials to truly understand how these microbes are playing a role. Um, but, but the exciting thing is that we're already getting indications that many of these findings can one day lead to treatment for a lot of neuropsychiatric disorders. Mm. Um, so what we can do is kind of discuss a little bit some of the key studies that have come out around this field. Mm. Um, the, 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 the main one that, that kind of, you know, stuck, drilled home for me or, or, or resonated with me was kind of back in 2004, there was this suggestion that bacteria in the gut could kind of um, factor in into mental health. And it was treated with a lot of suspicion, as you would know, kind of the field of, of um, neurological diseases in general can be a little bit contentious and, and mm. not understanding the microbiome and having that be a, an early field at the time. Um, there was a lot of pushback to this observation, but there was a group that reported that um, if you take mice that 
don't have any bacteria. So these are mice that we call germ-free mice. That they're, they're born cesarean. They're maintained completely sterile, and they live in kind of um, environments where they they wouldn't have a single microbiome. You wouldn't be able to de detect any microbiome on them. Um, mm -hmm. And this group reported that um, mice that did not have any bacteria reacted much stronger to stress compared to mice that were conventional or had normal microbiota. So that was kind of the first indication that like that your, your microbes could play a role in your stress responses. Yeah, just on that, and it's is it true because I, I think I read a study where they took the bacteria or, or the, the microbiome out of obese mice and put it into I don't know, really skinny mice and something happened there. One that like it, it changed the, it changed their, their BMI. Like, I, I'm not sure. Is that, was there an obese study done as well? Yes. So they've, there's a lot of work that's been done with obesity. Um, I think the, the uh, main study um, is one that showed that there were differences in the gut microbiomes of obese twins compared yes. to lean twins. So these are identical twins. And so they showed that obese twins had a lower diversity of bacteria, way higher levels of enzymes. Um, and it kind of indicated that obese twins um, were digesting food or harvesting calories at a different rate to the lean twins. And this kind of, this was the study that, that ripped kind of the surface of, well, what if we then um, transferred fecal Trans we transferred fecal matter from the obese twin to the lean twin. And so these were studies done in mice. Um, and they showed that actually, if you transfer fecal matter from an obese mouse to a lean mouse, then the lean mouse will start to gain weight and mm -hmm. vice versa. When you transfer fecal matter into the obese mouse, the obese mouse would start to lose weight. Um, wow. That is, that is so scary because that is basically, how does that relate to us as humans living on this earth like does this mean that the can that have a, a relationship with the people that you live with you start to adopt their microbiome like or is that just completely like wrong and no, so i it's 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 not wrong i think the data here has been um a little bit all over the place because there has been a lot of work that's shown that people that cohabit with each other start to um, develop very similar microbial signatures. Um, and, <laughs> Sorry, and that reminds <laughs> me like we should like definitely put that out there where anybody who's on the dating scene just <laughs> ask for um, maybe their panel and to go and get like a, a, a microbiome test before you actually start dating them. Yeah, I mean, we, I'll tell you that for Valentine's Day, we came out with some very fa uh, kind of alternative Valentine's Day cards that said things <laughs> like, I choose you to share my microbiome. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm definitely going to be getting one of those. I would appreciate that. I would appreciate that. Um, but in also, I, I've also always been fascinated by this idea of when you have female roommates that people will start to synchronize their periods or their mm. menstruation monthly. And I know this is kind of an urban legend that, you know, like... All of us have done this where you're like, oh, we're all, we've synchronized. You yeah, know? yeah. yeah. Um, and so I've always wondered whether there was a microbiome connection to that. But I, I know that there was a few studies that debunked that, that actually found that that was completely not, not that there's no actual science that supports <gasps> that people synchronize menstruation if they go oh, don't, so. don't, don't tell the men. Don't tell <laughs> the men that. So, okay. So we know, we know the relationship, how like between mental illness, like you've just said, and the microbiome. So, 
what are we doing to investigate this? You mentioned um, that there's been some studies done. So what else are we doing? Is there like um, in terms of how are we further analyzing the relationship of a disease such as um, let's just look at depression or anxiety. Let's look at anxiety because I noticed for myself that um, certain, like if I don't sleep well, my levels of anxiety the next day are heightened. And then if I eat something that doesn't sit well with me, um, I notice that it really has a direct, um, direct effect on my, my mood and especially my anxiety. So how are we going about looking at the relationship between these two things? Yeah, so they've been. There's been some kind of uh, very cool mouse studies that have been done um, that have shown that the again in these germ-free mice, like these mice that do not have um, any microbes, um, there's a few papers that have shown that um, these germ-free mice demonstrate that the microbiota influences stress and anxiety-like behavior, and that connects directly to to enzymes, which to me means that there is a dietary factor there. But again, Mm -hmm. this field is so young that it's, um, I think that at this point, we're still trying to identify, um, to understand these systems better by introducing intervention. So for example, um, there, in 2011, there were a, a group, and this is John Cryan's group, um, C-R-Y-A-N. He's a very, he's, he does a lot of work in this field, and he reported that a, a very specific type of probiotic called Lactobacillus rhamnosus, um, when that was given to a mouse, they actually showed that the animal stress behavior dramatically decreased and that like there was a change in brain chemistry as well. Um, and what was really interesting was that they found that mice that had a severed like vagus nerve did not actually get the same benefits of the probiotics. And so the severing of the vagus nerve kind of proves mm. that there is a connection um, between gut and brain, like it's, it's further proof of that. And, um, the vagus nerve being the longest cranial nerve that runs all the way from the brainstem to, to the colon. Um, yeah. Mm. I mean, there's so many myths out there now about stimulation of the vagus nerve. And it's so funny because your vagus nerve is always, you can stimulate your vagus nerve just by eating, you know, like it's always stimulated. And I've seen people, you know, in the ER who haven't got a um, vagus nerve who that is not stimulated. And I just see so many myths around on social media. I try my best on Instagram to debunk a lot of myths around neuroscience. So what are your just on that, what are some of the myths that you've heard around the microbiome and, and um, gut bacteria? Um, the main one is that there is no singular healthy microbiome. So there's no signature that we should all achieve to, um, should aspire to get, right? Uh, mm. There's a lot of heterogeneity. There's a lot of differences between people. Um, and one singular healthy microbiome doesn't exist. Um, mm. I think the thing that I... I really enjoy keeping an eye on is that there are so many parts of the human body that we thought were sterile. We didn't think that microbes were there. Um, and um, we now know that actually that's probably not the case. Um, the biggest example of that is kind of the fetal interuterine environment. So the fetus and, and in pregnant women, there was always been this belief that the GI tract of the fetus was sterile and the entire uterine environment was. But now there's evidence of actual microbes um, in, in, in the re- 
in the ecosystem, which actually suggests that your microbiome may actually develop during fetal development and isn't something that's introduced to you after you're born. Um, but again, all of this field is something, all of all of this data is still in the, in, on the early side, but it's just fascinating to me that in the last couple of decades, organs that we've thought were completely um, sterile, we now know are probably not. Well, that would then raise the question of, do I breastfeed or do I not breastfeed? Because then haven't they, and I, I, I haven't um, read too far into it, but I have seen um, some research um, being done for for people who are, you know, they look back and they're like, yeah, no, I wasn't breastfed. And they, these are the types of um, neurological issues I have compared to those who were breastfed. So do you know, like, do you think that that's going to open the door um, for mothers wanting to breastfeed? Yeah. So, so we know that breastfeeding does transfer microbes. Mm. We also know that kind of in that early window of life, um, in the first couple of years, especially in the first year of, of, of a baby's life, there are multiple checkpoints that can augment your microbiome. So for example, there's delivery method. So children that are born vaginally have a very different microbial. Um, the first microbes that populate their gut uh, resemble that of the vaginal canal, whereas children that are born by cesarean, their first microbes will be of the skin because they encounter the mother's skin on the way out. Mm. Um, we, we know that... Um, Antibiotic treatment early in life, even though it may be important, can be a major perturbation for infants um, after they're born. So that's something that can really um, um, shift your microbes. Um, and we know that breastfeeding can also play a role. And, and what's interesting is all three of these variables um, have been studied in terms of their relationship to developing food allergies, eczema, and, and asthma. So the three diseases that children will often get early in life. And we know that these are increasing and we're seeing more prevalence of them as the years go by. And we know at this point from analyzing the microbiome that the microbiome most likely plays a role. And we're still trying to tease apart the ways how. God, this, um, you have to be so vigilant in this area of immunology and microbiome when it comes to science right? Because science is forever changing. And I think you have to be really critical when it comes to scientific research in this area, which is why I think at Seed Labs, you guys have an entire research and development team consisting of world-class, you know, MDs, PhDs who are all working towards the one goal. Yeah. So um, it's, it's at Seed, I think, in terms of microbiome companies, um, I'm very grateful to be there because our perspective is one that is more from the immune system side. So for a very long time, most microbiome studies were, um, I look at you, you're healthy, we look at your microbes, and then you look at me and I might maybe unhealthy and I have different microbes. And so the rationale is, why don't we put your microbes into me and see if I can get healthier, which is just, it's, it's helped us understand a lot in the field, but it just mm. feels like slightly ropey rationale. And what you're finding now is that it's not enough just to identify microbes that are associated with healthy or disease. It's more important to take those microbes and put them back into humans or put them back into mice and understand how those microbes are interacting with our immune system and possibly preventing against disease. And so what's been very cool is that in the last few years, we now understand um, that there are specific microbes that live in us that play these functions and cross-talk with our immune system directly. So we, we have these like immune cells that we've identified whose roles 
are to kind of speak to microbes and then prevent immune responses to those microbes. And that's how those microbes are living on our surfaces very peacefully and they're not being attacked by our immune system. So now you're at SEED and what is SEED trying to do? Like it's a, we, we see it as, oh, it's a company and they have a, some people don't even know what a symbiotic is. We know we've heard of the word prebiotic. We've heard of the word probiotic. We still don't really know too much about it, but now Seed, um, this amazing company has come along and they've created a symbiotic. So what's the, what's the um, thesis and vision behind Seed? Yeah. So there are many ways that you can modulate your gut microbiota. And one of those ways is um, taking prebiotics or probiotics. Um, and there are other kinds of ways that you can change your, your, your microbiota, including diet. But um, for us at Seed, we were really interested in approaching diseases from this immune perspective and trying to understand what microbes can help treat or prevent disease. And so we started off by launching a consumer product, which was our symbiotic. So it has a prebiotic and a probiotic in it. And, and, and what that means is, uh, is that prebiotics are actually non-living, non-digestible fiber or carbohydrates that can preferentially select for certain microbes, right? So you can take a prebiotic that um, one type of bacteria loves to eat, and then you can see that type of bacteria uh, grow in the gut and increase its function. But another way to augment the microbiome is by directly um, ingesting microbes, so live microbes, and that's what probiotics are. So probiotics have a very specific definition. They have to be alive when you take them. So when they deliver into your gut, they have to be alive um, and they have to have been shown to confer a health benefit. So there has to have been some type of science that has been done on these strains that you want to take to show that they actually do something. And so at Seed, our consumer product is a prebiotic and a probiotic and 24 probiotic strains together that play um, a whole range of kind of, um, of a role in the body. We have some strains in there that can um, help support production of folate. We have other strains that are, we've shown in, in previous work um, is able to kind of impact the production of LDL, which is bad cholesterol. Um, and we have a lot of strains in there that are able to impact tight junction proteins in the gut. So that is regulating your gut um, and keeping your, your, your junctions and your cells close together to prevent, to prevent any kind of um, um, over-movement of water one way or the other and the result of things like constipation or diarrhea. So our daily symbiotic is just kind of a regulator that you can take to help kind of keep things plodding along day to day. And that obviously you can't, it's just not a, it's not a quick fix. You have to be, do you have data to show that on different people, the effects of taking the symbiotic daily, you know, you may have an effect within two weeks, you may have an effect in 12 weeks. Yeah, because everybody's different and everybody's starting from a different starting point. Um, so and yes, we, we have a lot of kind of lab data and also studies that have been on, done on the strains to show, to confirm that they have the benefit that we report that they do. Um, but we actually are also running our own randomized clinical trials with placebo to confirm that our findings and also to just really tr start to understand how our daily symbiotic, um, can help. Um, the, 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 in the last kind of few years, we've been receiving a lot of 
feedback from customers that we have been, even though we don't do testimonials, we have been kind of logging um, the feedback from our customers. And we started to notice that a lot of, for example, of our customers were coming back to us and saying that um, they were finding that their irritable bowel syndrome symptoms were going away or that they were seeing better regulation in their gut. So we actually ended up partnering up with um, Bet Israel um, in Boston Mm-hmm. Um, to run a placebo-controlled clinical trial um, with one of the top IBS um, units in the country to really start to understand whether and put our money where our mouth is, is our symbiotic able to help people with IBS or is it not able to do that? So this is, for us, science is kind of at the forefront of everything that we do. Yeah. Um, and in our trials, we really make sure to look at kind of immune markers to try to understand how our microbes are working and try to understand like what what this heterogeneity amongst people is, why for some people it's quicker, why for some people it's shorter, um, and how our symbiotic can impact disease. Is there a purpose to go out and actually um, check your microbiome? Because I know that there's at-home testing right now, right? Yes. So is there a need to do that? So at-home testing and um, sequencing gut microbiota in general is important for us to understand the role that these microbes play. Um, but right now, at this moment in time, there isn't science that says, today you have lower lactobacillus, therefore you should go and eat more milk or, or drink more milk or eat more cheese, for example. So, so the, the problem with a lot of kind of, with sequencing your microbiome or sequencing your fecal matter is that the science just isn't solidly there yet in terms of actionable things that you can do after you get that data back. Um, but that is changing as we're starting to understand the function of these microbes more. That is changing. Um, but at this point in time, um, sequencing regularly in order to augment your behavior or your diet is, is not where the science is currently. Wow. There, because there's so many people talking about, you know, you've got to test your, you've got to do a 23andMe test, then you've got to do a gut microbiome test. So am I wrong to say just eat it, you know, grab your, your prebiotic, your, your daily symbiotic, if that's what you want to do, but also just eat a, a plethora of different vegetables and fruits and just fill your plate up with, like we say, the rainbow. Yeah, exactly. And just try to diversify. Your, uh, what, what, what you're eating. So is the only way to really strengthen your gut, is that by eating and controlling stress and sleeping well? So there are a few things. There's sleeping well, there's eating well and making sure to keep your microbes in mind. Um, there's um, trying to prevent um, over ingestion of antibiotics. So of course, if you're um, prescribed antibiotics, you have to complete the course and finish. Um, but in general, to kind of not not take, there's, there's a lot of over prescribing of antibiotics and people that take them um, when there's no need sometimes. And so just keeping in mind all the ways um, that your behavior can perturb your, your microbiome and try to prevent things that can impact that, such as not sleeping well, not eating well, et cetera. Matt, it's what I would love to know, and I don't even know if you know this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Has there been any um, anything like any connection that you know of between the microbiome and sports performance? Yes, there has been. So there has been um, some data around this. I think so. The first thing to kind of go back and, and highlight is that 
your microbes in general or probiotics can impact your gut or can affect your gut in a couple of ways. Um, the, the main way that you, that probiotics can augment is by um, cross-talking with your immune system, like I highlighted before, um, or releasing proteins or things that can um, interact with your immune system. Um, but another way is that your microbes can actually um, directly impact, can produce things that can directly impact how tight the, the, the junction the junction of your the cells in your gut are so how tight those cells are because if you think about it if those cells are too loose you get diarrhea and if they're too tight you get constipation and so there's a lot of data that that we we know that extreme athletes for example suffer from leaky gut um, and we know that they have intestinal barrier perturbations and they get an issue with, perme with permeability and they can get diarrhea if they exercise too hard or constipation if, you, if they exercise too hard, but mainly diarrhea. So we know that gut microbes play a role in augmenting um, that barrier. And we know that, that, play, that that's a strong connection in terms of, of um, athletes. Um, so intestinal barrier permeability is, is the main way that we know that the microbiome can play a role, but there are other ways as well. I mean, I know that this is more kind of your field, um, but we know that when athletes experience brain injury, that they can actually experience leaky gut concurrently, that they can experience mm. gut issues as well, right? Mm -hmm. This is correct. Yeah. They've um they've done so many different studies on NFL players, for example, who have had a neuronal insult and how that directly affects within the first 48 hours, I believe there was a study done, how it affects the gut permeability. And it's just so interesting mm -hmm. to show what they were trying to do is find out what do we do to an athlete to regain his cognition within the first 48 hours. And they were giving him um, like they were they were doing interventions with diet to say, well, let's feed him a diet high in fat. And we all know that there's a, a very big correlation between the type of fat that we eat and brain health. So mm -hmm. that's the studies that I've seen. And I would love to see more research in that area. Yeah. I think it's, it's a definitely a really interesting area of research, trying to understand how these people who are uh, who do work out a lot, why it is that they experience a lot of gut issues, like marathon run, marathon runners, for example, or like Tour de France cyclists will say that they they get, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, and actually the diet aspect of it is is fascinating because if you look at other neurolo neurological diseases, so things like epilepsy, for example, we've we've known for a very long time, I'd say probably a century, that if you put children with epilepsy on specific diets, you can actually reduce their seizures, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, I guess is the ketogenic diet. It's low in carbohydrates, high in protein and fat, mm. but we've never really understood the science of that. And I think it's emerging more and more that it's the microbiome that plays a role in that. Is there also, I've, I've read that there's studies on childhood epilepsy where during an actual seizure, what they've done is they've gotten about two or three mils of CBD oil during a seizure and they've put it in orally into a, into a kid who's having a seizure and the seizure just stops. And now they're, they're experimenting between like, and having a look at the effects of CBD and the brain during childhood epilepsy. Is there anything like CBD and the, the growing prevalence of CBD? Like we're getting so much research on this now. Have you ever looked into that? I, I personally haven't. I know that there's, it is an area that is getting more funding now. So I know mm. that there are um, 
big labs in Boston that are working on CBD, THC and trying to understand pain. Um, and um, But I know that this is a big field in particular with epilepsy, just because of there's a lot of reporting and, and anecdote that says mm. that, um, and, and some mouse data that supports uh, the therapeutic uh, benefits. So what are you excited about? What's the what's the next big thing in this area that you're going to be working on um, at Seed? So I'm just excited about all of the ways that that the right microbes, right? Like I think to to go back, the issue with the microbiome field and the probiotic field is if you keep in mind with probiotics that bacteria have to be alive when they're administered and they have to have been shown to have, you can't just pick any bacteria and administer it. It really kind of has helped me understand since I've joined Seed why a lot of probiotics, why the field of probiotics has been contentious and why some some probiotics don't work, for example, because it's really important to make sure that the, the probiotic that you select is actually doing what it's doing. And it's, it's important to ask for that data. So I think um, being very proud of kind of the the microbes and um, that we have in our strain bank and also the daily symbiotic that we've created. I'm just excited at really starting to explore now that we know that, that seed and we've solved for things with our product. Um, we've solved for things like delivery. We've solved for things like picking the right strains, really starting to understand all of the ways that um, th- like probiotic therapy can help change the course of disease and particularly with diseases that are hard to understand. So things like chronic inflammation, autoimmunity and neurological diseases. I think I'm just so excited to really start to understand all of the ways that giving probiotics can change um, kind of the microbiota and, and can also help shed light on the science of how the microbiota and the immune system are interacting with each other. Well, look, I am so fascinated by this area. I wish I had all the time in the world to just sit there and understand really the relationship between the gut and the brain. I mean, you can spend years just doing this, but you've um, you've provided an amazing overview of this field for us. So thank you so much, Azza, for coming on the podcast. And I do believe we will have a part two in the future. But for now, I'm going to direct everybody to uh, the Seed website, the Seed Instagram. I don't know if you have anywhere where you produce your work. Is there anywhere where we can find out more about you specifically? So um, generally, I post my research on Twitter and any kind of Seed updates as well. And that's just at Azagadir. It's my first name and second name. You are amazing. Thank you so much for being part of the Neuro Experience podcast. Thank you so much for having me.